What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. As a reader, there are a lot of types of books I really enjoy reading. But at the same time, there are others that stretch me as a reader. I'll confess that one type that always stretches me are novels in verse. Novels in verse are stories that are longer or novel length, but the whole story is told in verse. That is, they are structured like a long poem. While I love poetry, novels and verse require a kind of sustained attention that poetry does not, so for me, they are harder to read. Even though novels and verse stretch me, I still enjoy reading them. One of my favorite authors of novels and verse is Sharon Creech. If you are familiar with her work, then you might know her titles Love That Dog and its companion work Hate That Cat. These books are often taught and read in schools and have become a favorite of many readers. But today, I'd like to share with you how much I enjoyed Creech's newest book, Moo. The title of the book indicates the sound a cow makes, and from that, you know a major theme of the book. Rena's parents decided on a whim to move to Maine. Having been city children for so long, Rena and her brother Luke are fascinated by a nearby farm. Their understanding of cows grow as their parents conspire to get them to help an eccentric neighbor, Mrs. Falala. Mrs. Falala has a champion show cow named Zora, who is now more of a pet. But as Rena begins to care for her, she decides to learn the skills to show Zora at the fair. Throughout the process, Rena not only learns a lot about cows, but also develops new friendships and learns to really love both Zora and Mrs. Falala. Even though the outcome of the fair is not entirely positive, Rena finds herself connected to her new home. This is a lovely story of an intergenerational friendship. The flow of the free verse captures the grand emotions of the ups and downs that Rena experiences that are perfectly summed up in the end on a bittersweet yet hopeful note. This simple yet complexly crafted story uses each individually titled poem to craft a portion of the story. This simple yet complexly crafted story uses each individually titled poem to craft a portion of the story that when taken together provides a very satisfying read. So if you would like to stretch yourself with a novel in verse, then maybe check out Moo on this recommendation from Rachel's World. We humans respond quite naturally to music. It begins at birth, and some even say before birth. But certainly from our earliest stages of life, we have an innate capacity to sway and wiggle with the melody. Just watch a baby who responds and moves almost instinctively to the music all around it. Dr. Stephen M. Demarest, professor of music education at Northwestern University, talks with Rachel about our natural affinity for music and how we can nurture that love of music in our children. Demarest co-directs the Laboratory for Music Cognition, Communication, and Learning. His research interests include cultural, cognitive, neurological, and social aspects of singing and music. Here's Rachel and Dr. Stephen M. Demarest. We're on the phone with Stephen today. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you very much. 
I am extraordinarily excited to talk to you today. I think you have a wonderful perspective to share with us with the idea of music and how it can be a part of our children's lives. So to start out, you tell us that children are natural musicians and that they have this natural inclination to music. So can you tell us a little bit more about why you think that's true? Sure. Um, There's actually a a fair amount of research on um, infant musical abilities. And one of the things that it really demonstrates is that that human beings as a species are predisposed to um, process and remember musical sounds. Even the way we talk to babies is very musical. Hi, how are you doing? You know, we don't talk to each other that way. And so there's a lot of aspects, there's a lot of musical aspects to how babies encounter the world. They naturally move to music when they hear it. I'm not saying they naturally, you know, sit down and play the drums or whatever, but they naturally move to music when they hear it. They get very excited by it. Uh, a lot of the babbling and cooing that we associate with pre-linguistic uh, behavior is also sort of pre-musical behavior. You know, it's very, uh, very tonal kind of uh, stuff. So, you know, it's. I mean, we say children are natural musicians. Really, we as a species are musical. It's one of our defining characteristics, along with language, that separates us from a lot of other species. So I I would agree with you. I think we have this sense of this natural musical ability. But then as we grow and develop, that kind of leaves us. So is there something that that is this innate musical kind of literacy or musical um, ability that we have that we lose? And why do we lose that? I don't think we lose it. Um, I think that it gets um, sometimes perhaps... Um, stifled uh, in various ways because of our environment. Um, that is, when you're when you're a young child and you're doing all these, you know, sort of musical play is much more acceptable, and the different kinds of musical play are much more acceptable. I think, for example, in cultures around the world that have a more participatory view of music, that is, that that when you go to a social gathering, everyone participates in the music making. I don't think you find that they, quote, lose their musicality as they get older, right? So I think there's some things in our culture where we maybe aren't as good at developing our children's sense of themselves as musicians. I I love this sense of that we should think about ourselves in that way. It's just a natural part of who we are. So is is there a way that we can do that, particularly with children, to help them start continuing to think of themselves as musicians? Uh, I think so. I mean, I don't have, you know, sort of data to say this works, or this doesn't. I mean, I think, again, looking at um, musical cultures that are more participatory, you don't hear people from those cultures talking about themselves as not being musical, you know, the, the, that there's this separation between musicians and, and other people. That doesn't mean they don't acknowledge that there are some people who do music at a different level, but but they don't talk about it as talent versus non-talent. So I think taking a cue from that, if we are interested in, in developing our children's musicality and sense of themselves as musicians, probably the biggest thing is to have a house full of music and not just listening to music, but, you know, singing with our kids. And, you know, our biggest problem is this is this is this sort of um, vicious circle that if we were raised with this idea that we weren't very musical for whatever reason, the last thing we want to do is sing. But, you know, with little kids, they want to do everything that adults do. <laughs> so... 
if they're in an environment where adults are happily singing, I don't care how good a singer you are, if, where adults are happily singing and engage in musical play with them, whether it's singing or instrumental, you know, banging on, on something with different rhythms or dancing with them, I think that's the best thing that we can do is just have music as a part of their upbringing, as a part of their life. I, I love this sense of, of really integrating it into our culture. And I think as a music educator, you would think that part of the way we could do that would be through our school system. So is that a place also that you're looking to kind of increase this kind of sense of participatory music? Absolutely. And this is a movement that's kind of going on now. I'm really happy to see in the American Choral Directors Association, which, you know, is really devoted to sort of high-level choral music making, but they've really begun to pay attention to this notion of community singing. And at the last conference, Garrison Keillor led a, a sort of a sing-along for the members of the conference. You know, from elementary school on, we give concerts for parents, right, and family members and, and the community. I think we can take those concerts and shift it a little bit to where we provide opportunities for the audience to join us in making music. And this is research that's kind of um, a, a little bit newer in our field, looking at, at sort of uh, how music in general and singing in particular affects one's sense of well-being. And there's some, you know, I don't want to get into the details of the studies and some of the issues. It's not like really super clear cut necessarily, but one of the things you're seeing um, that musical engagement in general and singing engagement in particular definitely has benefits for social, a sense of social bonding and belonging. There's lots of this research going on, but the, but the benefits for children, I think, is really this, this sort of sense of belonging, this, this sense of connecting with other people as you sort of synchronize your voices with them, you know. Um, and it really doesn't depend on being perfectly in tune or, or perfect. It really is more a sense that, that, um, that you become a community through singing. So it's becoming apparent to me as you talk here that there is a lot of this stuff that we kind of know, but a lot of this that we don't really know. And we're still kind of exploring some some new horizons here in this field about how music affects us and how we should participate in it. So what what are those types of things that you think that we need to kind of expand our understanding about as it comes to music and singing and particularly children? Right. Well, I think um, the thing that I'm interested in um, specifically, um, which isn't quite along the lines of what we were just talking about with well-being, but the thing that I'm interested in specifically is when do children begin to form some of these self-perceptions of themselves as either musical or not musical? Um, that is, it's one thing to say, oh, I'm not very good at singing right now. It's another thing to say I'm not talented in music because that carries with it this notion that I either was given this by birth or not. You know, that it's not something I can develop. If I don't have it, I don't have it. And I think that's a really problematic view. For me as a music educator, it's sort of a, a, a bit of a death sentence, you know, for somebody in terms of their ability to learn more music because they've already decided that that's not something you can learn. And, you know, this this is tied to a larger psychological um, uh, situation that Carolyn Dweck talks about in learning, um, the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset. And, and in her research, you know, if kids were told after doing a math test that they told they did really well because they, they're gifted in math versus if they were told they did really well because they worked hard, those kids who were told they were gifted in math, if they took another test and didn't do as well, 
they develop this really negative view of themselves as bad at math rather than thinking, oh, I need to work harder on this next test. And I think that her growth mindset in general education is very similar to what we need in music. We need to have much more of a growth mindset. We have a little bit too much of a talent mindset, which is a more fixed thing. If you think, if you think you're talented or you think you're not talented, that is sort of this internal stable sense of yourself. It's who you are, not where you are at this point in time. And so we really need to promote this idea, because it, partly because it's true, um, that anyone can get better at making music. And that if you're interested in working at it, this is a skill that can be developed for anybody. It's not saying you're all, we're all going to become Beyonce. In fact, all but one of us will not. <laughs> uh, but, but it is saying that this is something like any other skill. This is something that you can get better at. But for some reason, music and, and singing in particular is fraught with this idea that you, you either have it or you don't. And I think that's really um, difficult for people. Um, and, and young children in particular, um, it can be very discouraging to them. Thank you, Stephen. I, I really appreciate this kind of concept of, of us engaging with music in this way to really explore extensions of who we are. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. Professor of Music Education at Northwestern University, Dr. Stephen M. Demarest, talking about how we can help nurture our children's natural affinity for music. Up next on Worlds Awaiting, Rachel welcomes Dr. Richard E. West, Professor of Instructional Psychology and Technology at BYU. West has an expansive view of creativity. In the past, creativity was often seen as exclusive to writers, painters, and the like. But in today's world, the attitude has shifted to include everyone. West shares how we can foster children's creativity. Professionally, Dr. West researches how to teach group creativity and design thinking and is co-chair of the BYU Creativity, Innovation, and Design Group. In his personal life, he's an avid reader across multiple genres with a compelling desire to use literature to help his children become awesome adults. Here's Rachel and Rick. We're in studio today chatting with Rick. Welcome, Rick. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to visit with you today because I love the topics that you focus on. And particularly one of my favorites is this sense of creativity. I think that we hear that word a lot and we hear creative and creativity quite a lot. But I don't think we ever kind of really delve into it and, and figure out what it is and how it works and how we can develop it. So I'm excited to chat with you today about some of those aspects to open our listeners' eyes to, to some great aspects of creativity. So starting out, why don't you just define that word for us? How would you look at that word creativity? You know, it's a good question. And it's interesting that you mentioned that you think maybe we don't understand it very well. Uh, the history of how creativity has been defined is really quite interesting as it's changed a lot over the years. Uh, you know, uh, back in the day, we, should, we could say uh, very limited to poet, you know, just poets could be creative, just artists could be creative. In the modern times, we've kind of uh, expanded it to really say that there can be creativity in all aspects of life. And there can be big genius kinds of levels of creativity. There can be smaller everyday types of creativity that we all benefit from. And it really puts the idea of creativity in the realm of every person that we can all access a certain level of creativity in our own lives, which I think is really exciting as teachers or as parents, because then if creativity is something that could be available to everybody, 
Uh, it's something that we can develop, something we can foster in children and in ourselves. So uh, I think that's really an important thing to think about. And you, you asked what, uh, how we would define it. Different people define it differently, of course. But in general, all the definitions tend to have two components. Uh, the idea that creativity is creating something new that is both novel and useful and then expressed in the world. So it has to have all three of those components. It has to be new, but it can't just be, hey, I'm standing on my head. That's kind of new. That's kind of weird. No, it has to be new but also useful. And then that utility is, is, is because it's expressed in the world. It's an idea that you spoke, you, you, you had out loud or you wrote it down or you painted it or you built it or something that is somehow expressed in the world so that other people can find that utility of that idea. I think that's a great way to look at it. And I think a lot of us can see that those three components, particularly in things like artwork or invention. But you mentioned that this is really just an everyday life kind of thing. So what would be one of those examples that we might apply those three definition characteristics to, to something that would just happen kind of in an everyday situation that we might not think is creative? Very, you know, so a lot of times we think that the creative people, and people say this all the time, I'm not creative. I'm not such a genius artist and, and, you know, I'm not such a great piano player or whatever. But uh, there can be little things that we do every day. You see these life hacks on the Internet, which are so fun because what they're doing is, is this idea that if you take this random object and do this thing with it, it makes your life so much easier. And that's an act of creativity. It was taking something that uh, wasn't meant for this purpose and then repurposing it in a new way. And that's new. It's useful. And it, it's, it's expressed in the world, and that can be creativity. That's everyday creativity. I think moms have a lot of this. I see in my own wife uh, her ability to hack things together in all the various homes that we've lived in. Uh, whenever she finds that something in the home doesn't fit our lifestyle, she just builds something new to, to fix the way the home is. And, uh, and so she's very creative that way. And, and I think the way you parent needs a lot of creativity. Each child is different. So you have to creatively look at each child and say, what do I need to do to help this child? And that can be an act of creativity as well. So why then is this important? I mean, particularly when we talk about kids, why is teaching this kind of creativity or this kind of creative problem solving, and particularly in this broader definition, why is that important for kids, particularly today? Very good question. So let's first talk about why creativity is important today and then talk about why important for the kids. So uh, we've gone through different periods of time. You know, we had the industrial age and then uh, much to do was made about how we're transitioning from the industrial age to an information age because information is so available uh, now and so important. But a lot of people have said we've actually transitioned now from an information age to an innovation age where it, information is no longer the currency like it used to be, but innovation is now the currency for many careers nowadays. And the reason for that, I think, is because the Internet has really changed everything. So before the Internet, it really mattered having information and knowledge within your company or within you know, your, yourself. And now you can find information so easily on the Internet. Information is so free and so easily shared that it doesn't hold the same value that it used to. So rather than the value being in the information, the value is in people being able to do something with the information, being able to create new processes, new services, new ideas. And uh, we don't see that in all, all different uh, careers, but in many careers, that's becoming a really prized, they call it the essential competence, the key prerequisite. This is the thing that people want in their employees. And they call it entrepreneurship, that's starting new businesses. They also call it intrapreneurship. Like I'm within a business, 
I'm not starting a new one, but within my business, I'm creating new value within my business or my career. And so it's becoming very, very critical to people in careers nowadays. Now, just as we're hitting this moment where it's the innovation age, patents are doubling, you know, everything is really important that we we be creative. At the same time, we're finding this disturbing trend that they, there's a New York Times article that called it the, the creativity crisis. And it was based on this research study from Dr. Kim. And she was looking at uh, this creativity test is called the Torrance test, probably the most common test for creativity. They use it to test for giftedness in children. Um, they've been doing it for 40 years, so it's been around for a long time. And there's this trend in psychology called the Flynn effect. This is a little bit of background, but the Flynn effect is that every generation IQ scores are going up just across the board, probably because – uh, we got more exposure to new things, so p- kids are getting exposed to lots of I- ideas earlier in life, so their IQ scores are going up. So she wondered, is there a similar effect in creativity? Are our creativity scores going up, just like IQ scores are? And she found that that was true up until 1990. And since 1990, creativity in all the different domains of the Torrance test are going down. So right at the time when creativity is really important, we find that at least on the Torrance test, which maybe you know isn't isn't the perfect test for creativity, nothing is, but at least on the Torrance test, we're doing we're doing worse, and so that to me as a creativity researcher raises alarm bells and makes us want to ask, well, how can we do a little bit better? That seems such a major disconnect that, particularly for kids, I think should should alarm a lot of us. Right. Yeah. So it's it, that, and that's maybe because of uh, because of that. What I focus on at BYU is is teaching, developing ways to teach creativity, not only to kids but also to adults, and particularly group creativity aspects because I do think it's really important for us to keep that in mind as we raise our children. So how do we do that, right? I mean, I I think we've come to the conclusion that it's important, and particularly for kids growing up in this world and wanting to get jobs someday in the future, that they're going to be needing these kinds of skills. So how do we go about teaching or, or can we teach creativity or is it something more innate or both? Well, that's a big debate, the, the debate between innate versus um, developmental creativity. And there, there's people on both sides of that debate. I think the the kind of compromise position is to say there is some genetic and predisposed ability to creativity, but there's also the ability to develop it. We can all develop our creativity and get better at it. So I think that's very promising to parents and to teachers. We can develop creativity in ourselves and in children. Uh, the thing that's interesting about it is it's it's doing the things that we don't want to do. It's letting kids be messy. And it could be with painted colors. It could be with gears and gizmos. But they need to be able to make messes, and, uh, and, be, and we need to be tolerant of that. The other thing we need to be more tolerant of is failure. Um, creativity can't happen when you're afraid of failing. And a lot of times in schools and also in the home, we, um, are, we make it very bad to fail. And that's one of the things I worry about with schools, with grades. Grades are so – everyone's so stressed about their, their grade. And we don't allow people to fail – learn from the failure, and then recover, which is what entrepreneurs do and what innovative people do. They try something out. In fact, IDEO has the, ma- the mantra, fail often. Fail, fail early, fail often. Because the sooner we fail, we'll learn from it and get better. And we have to recognize that failure is not uh, a negative characteristic of ourselves, but just a natural process of being human and of getting better. So I think that's, that's a couple things that we can do. So how can we start thinking as adults a little bit differently to help us approach those things with a more open attitude? 
I think one of the things that is really important as well, we see this in businesses, and I think we can do it as parents and teachers too, is giving more agency and ownership to students. So um, instead of saying, I'm going to micromanage and tell you exactly what you need to do, look on page 50 and do exactly what's on page 50 and get the answer right. But instead saying, uh, you can have control over this little project. What do you want to do with it? How do you want to make it great? And um, we see that in the business world where people like Google give their employees a certain amount of time to just free range their ideas. And I think we can do the same thing with kids. Give kids something that they can, maybe they can't, like for example, play with paint in the whole house. But can we give them a time and a place? Can we give them certain things that they can have control over and say, you have control over this, you can figure out the solution to this. And give them that ownership and let them live with it. And I think that that sense of agency and ownership develops more of this innovation and entrepreneurial type attitudes in, in children. I think that's a wonderful way to look at it, this this sense of giving some of that responsibility back to the children and just encouraging our kids to be creative and then saying, wow, that was so creative. Just those simple things are great ways to set them on this path to skills they absolutely will need, particularly as they grow up and, and move into adulthood. So thank you so much, Rick. Yeah. Instructional psychology and technology professor, Dr. Richard West, discussing creativity how it's within everyone's reach, and what we can do to encourage it in children. We finish up the show with a book review by Echo Harris, who is majoring in elementary education at BYU. She reviews Rain Rain by Anne Martin. I read Rain Rain by Anne Martin, who I also learned is the author of one of my favorite childhood series, The Babysitter's Club. Rain Rain is a book about a 10-year-old girl named Rose Howard with Asperger's syndrome. Rose loves homophones. If you don't know what a homophone is, they are words that sound the same but are spelled differently, which explains the title of the book, Rain Rain, with the first word being spelled R-A-I-N and the second rain being spelled R-E-I-G-N. Rose also loves prime numbers, keeping the rules, and most of all, her dog, Rain. Rose lives with her father, who, while he is trying, struggles at times to find the patience for his daughter, who seems to see the world so differently than he does. At school, Rose struggles to understand and feel understood by her peers. Luckily, Rose has her Uncle Weldon, who is understanding and kind and always has a new homophone to add to her extensive list, and of course she has rain. When a devastating storm hits Rose's town and rain goes missing, Rose, with the help of her Uncle Weldon, goes on a search for her beloved friend. Events take an unexpected turn, and in the end, Rose, who, remember, is a stickler on rules, is faced with a tough decision that causes her to see that sometimes doing what is right isn't always easy. As you read, you will fall in love with Rose and learn that the very things that make her different are also the very things that allow her to add love and compassion to the world in a way that no one else could. As someone who has a brother on the autism spectrum and several friends over the years with Asperger's syndrome, just like Rose, I really appreciated this book for the insight it gave me into the way the different people in Rose's life made her feel. The lessons I learned are not just applicable to friends and family who have Asperger's, but really just to anyone who is different from me. Sometimes it is hard to know how to approach people that are different than you, but the message in this book is that kindness and patience is always the answer, and everyone has something valuable to contribute to the world. I also realize that people who I feel like are very different than me have to have just as much patience with me as I do with them. I'm grateful for that insight. 
Martin is able to help you see outside of your own world and into roses, and she does it beautifully. Although this book covers some tough topics, it is written in an easy-to-understand, engaging way that is definitely appropriate for a fourth-grade classroom and up. There are many different ways that children of this age might be able to relate to Rose. Maybe they struggle fitting in as well, or have also had to make a hard decision. Reading this book can help them see that they are not alone and even help them to overcome these things by learning how Rose did it. Overall, Anne Martin does realistic contemporary fiction right in this book and delivers a story that at its core is a simple yet powerful narrative about overcoming trials, learning to understand people who are different from you, the power of kindness, and doing what is right even when it is hard. BYU elementary education student Echo Harris reviewing Rain Rain by Anne Martin. Echo was part of our host Rachel Wadham's children's literature class at BYU. She and her classmates had an opportunity to record some book reviews as part of a class assignment. Check out this review and others at the World's Awaiting Book Reviews link on our website at byuradio.org. Thanks for listening to World's Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app and at byuradio.org.